You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. John chapter 17 is truly holy ground when it comes to the Gospel of John and the entire New Testament in one sense. Someone has called it the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. And it really is a wonderful passage in the sense that we're able to hear and see the heart of Jesus as he cries out to his Father in prayer for himself, for his disciples or apostles, and for all who would believe on Jesus through the word of these apostles. It is an incredible moment of intimacy between father and son, deep fellowship between father and son. You get the hint of the wonderful fellowship and closeness that they had from eternity past manifested in this prayer from son to the father. And so just a wonderful passage. Many have called it the longest prayer in the Bible, in part because it does have length to it. 26 verses comprise this chapter. But on the other hand, the great length because Jesus is praying for himself, his disciples, and every single person who would ever believe in Jesus as a result of their message. And so the scope of this prayer is an exceedingly long scope. Now in this prayer, there will be many requests that Jesus makes, but we're going to look at five distinct requests that Jesus makes of the Father. Now, the first five verses, Jesus spends praying first for himself. He starts his prayer out. It says in verse 1, John recording, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So, after he'd spoken the words that more than likely what he's referring to are the words of John chapter 14, 15, and 16, these preparatory words that he gave to his disciples, words that they needed to receive before he went to the cross, before he rose from the grave, and before he ascended, so that they would be prepared for life after the ascension. Things like persecution and personal relationship with him and the hatred of the world and the help of the Holy Spirit and comfort concerning eternity in heaven. They needed to receive these perspectives so that their minds were steeled, guarded, readied for the life and work and ministry that Jesus was giving to them. They hadn't read the book of Acts yet. They would live the book of Acts. And so Jesus prepared these men. But after preparing them, he prays. After speaking to them, he prays. And he lifts up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, this is the first request that Jesus makes. And we'll revisit it when he restates it in a slightly different way in verse 5. But it's a request for glory. He says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, later in this prayer for glorification, Jesus seems to be asking for a return to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. That's his express request in verse 5. But here, he's praying for glory so that 
the Son would be able to glorify the Father. And I think part of what's happening here is that Jesus is praying for the strength, the stamina, the endurance, the boldness required to atone for the sin of the world on the cross. This was the cup that could not pass from him. And so he goes to the Father in prayer to, you know, effectively do the thing that God the Father has asked him to do. He wants strength to bear that cup so that he might bring glory to the Father. And of course, the cross brings wonderful glory to God. It demonstrates the great love of God. It demonstrates the great willingness of God to save us. And of course, after Jesus was ascended to the right hand of the Father, he, from that position, brings great glory to the Father as well as he directs and builds the church. Verse 2, he then prays a parenthetical thought to the Father when he says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so in that prayer, Jesus, in one sense, defines eternal life. He says in verse 3, and this is eternal life. And notice that he doesn't define it by mere length of time. He doesn't say this is eternal life, something that lasts a very, very long time. No, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. You know, a personal, experiential knowledge of God is the eternal life that Jesus offers. Not necessarily simple chronology, but something relational. And when you think of it in those terms, you understand that the possibility of eternal life is present right now. And of course, the desire of any believer, any Christian, is to, of course, have that everlasting, eternal, chronological life forever and ever in glory and in joy with him. But there is a desire as well to experience the eternal life now, to know God. And there is no one more fascinating and wonderful to know than God himself. Notice also that Jesus prays in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And in this little parenthetical part of his prayer, as he's praying for himself, he tells the Father, Father, I have glorified you, and I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, of course, the major work that the Father gave the Son to do was to go to the cross to atone for the sin of the world. However, at this moment, of course, Jesus has yet to go to the cross. It is something that is yet future for him. Is Jesus, uh, has Jesus forgotten the great mission that the Father has bestowed upon him? No, not in the slightest. I think that as he prays, there is such a confidence, such a boldness, that in the mind and heart of Christ, the job is as good as done. He knows that there is no turning back. His decision is final. And he says, Father, I have glorified your name and I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now back to his request in verse 5. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is fascinating on a couple of different levels. First of all, just the reminder of the pre-existent state of the Son, Jesus Christ. The reality that he existed before the cosmos existed. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 speaks of this same moment when it talks of Jesus, through whom also God created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so obviously this speaks of the eternal nature of the Son, which is an attribute that only God is able to possess, existent from eternity past. But Jesus' prayer is simple. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is praying for his own glorification. First of all, he's hinting at the great step of humility that it took for him to become flesh and dwell among us. Paul, in referring to this great incarnation in Philippians chapter 2, told the church in Philippi to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he spoke of the mindset that Jesus had in incarnating and dwelling among us. And this mindset of Jesus is an example to us in the way that we treat others within our marriage, within our church, within our friendships, within our families, within our workplaces, within our communities, there is this wonderful humility and stepping off of our throne that is required for God's people. We get Jesus as our model on how to do this. But only Jesus could pray for that glorification. And I just want you to think about that glory for a moment. And just the reality that this is one of the greatest prayers for us that Jesus prayed as he prays it for himself. Because with Jesus on the throne, with Jesus in that place of pre-existent glory restored to him once again, he is in his rightful position. And I found in one sense that when Jesus in the heart of a believer is on the throne and in a place of glory. It's the place that he deserves. It's the place that is just. It is the place that is so right for him to occupy. And truly our best interest is in mind when he occupies that position. Like the sun dwelling at the center of the universe. So Jesus needs to be at the center of a believer's life. He needs to be glorified and on the throne. If planet earth attempted to be the center of the universe, uh, there would be great cataclysms and horrible things would, would happen. It, it wouldn't operate. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work when a believer allows their own self to be on the throne or in that glorified position. Jesus prayed, glorify me, Father, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now in verse 6, he moves on to his prayer for the disciples. He says, I have manifested your name, Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. These are, the, again, the disciples. Yours they were, 
and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now in the previous chapter, in John chapter 16, the disciples had said to Jesus, Now we know, this is in verse 30 of chapter 16, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That is why we believe that you came from God. This is the proclamation of the disciples. And it was more than likely a very incomplete proclamation. They really didn't have a full scope and perspective, but it was good enough for Jesus. And as he cried out to the Father, he says, Father, they've received the words that you gave me. They know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. He says in verse 9, now to his prayer. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, this is Jesus declaring to the Father, I am not praying for the world. I'm praying right now for these disciples. If you want to hear Jesus pray for the world, you can go to Luke 23, verse 34, where you see him on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's a different prayer for the world. So here he says to the Father, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for these men that you've given to me. They are yours. He says, verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. Notice the mutual sharing between Father and Son. And I am glorified in them. And verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The second major request that Jesus is making here in this prayer of the Father is as he prays for the disciples, he prays for their preservation. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And, of course, as you read the rest of the New Testament, you discover that God is wonderfully and intricately involved in the life of every believer in preserving, protecting, and keeping them. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said that we are, by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is by God's power that, that we are guarded and protected. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter referred to the original angelic rebellion and how God was able to reserve the rebellious angels for judgment. He then referred to the judgment that was brought on the ancient world in Noah's day and God's ability to preserve a small group of believers within that ark. And then he referred to the destruction and judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament book of Genesis and God's ability to preserve Lot and some of his family members through that judgment. Righteous Lot. And in conclusion... To all of those Old Testament examples, Peter said in 2 Peter 2 verse 9, he said, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. His whole point there is that God is able, God knows how, God is interested and involved in keeping and preserving and protecting his people. Paul's prayer at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 was very simple. He said, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. You know, the reality biblically is that God is so for us. You know, as you are covered by the blood of Christ, the Romans 8 principle applies to your life. If God is for us, who can be against us? And as Jesus prays for these disciples to be preserved and kept, we need to understand and know as believers that God is all in on the process of our sanctification, our preservation, our keeping. He longs to be involved in that process in our lives. Would you join him? Now in verse 12, he moves on with this request. Well, he tells the father, he says, well, I was with them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And of course, Judas was never really a true disciple or true believer. He was a fraud the entire way. And this fulfilled prophecy, Psalm 41 verse 9 is one of them. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So, you know, Jesus says to the Father, listen, well, I've been here, I've been keeping them, I've been preserving them, but now, verse 13, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, verse 14, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Again, that prayer for preservation. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus' concern, again, is very real. He says to the Father, I'm leaving the world, but I'm leaving these disciples in the world. And I pray that you would preserve them, that you would keep them, that you would watch over them. Jesus' prayer for himself was relatively short. He knew what he was going to accomplish. He knew what he was going to do. It was so firm that it was past tense in his mind. But these disciples are another story. And so he's crying out to his father, asking for their preservation, that the father would keep them. Uh, not to pull them out of the world, but to enable them to endure inside of the world. And he declares this new identity that they've received. And certainly the father was listening to this prayer of his son. Now in verse 17, he gets to another request. When he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So just a wonderful, again, prayer that Jesus makes. And this next request is for the sanctification of the disciples and by extension us as well. He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Now the word sanctification 
has in some Christian circles come to designate some kind of awkward or judgmental state of being for a believer. But sanctification is simply to be set apart for special use. And when we describe sanctification within the body of Christ, we're describing uh, a growth, a maturing, a putting aside sin and taking on more and more the attributes, the nature, the life of Christ himself. And so Jesus prays for their sanctification. And so much sanctification comes from the word. That's why he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I find that the Christian mind, when we give our lives to Christ, it is still in need of so much renewal of the mind. Paul said in Romans chapter 12 that we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it's a temptation for so many believers to simply just try to act differently without having their mind uh, renewed, without going through some kind of mind renewal process. I mean, in the culture that I'm living in, internet sex is so prominent, to cite one example. And it gets a hold of a man or a woman's mind and it warps it. And their perspectives on marriage and their perspectives on sex and their perspectives on human bodies become obliterated by what they've exposed themselves to before receiving Christ. And when they come to Christ, there is a renewal of the mind that is necessary. They begin to meditate on Hebrews 13 verse 4, where they discover that God has created sexual satisfaction for and within the confines of marriage. And so as they think upon it, they begin to discover that what the world has proclaimed to them, that many partners and, you know, many experiences is really the way to sexual satisfaction their mind begins to be renewed and restored and they begin to discover and believe that no, actually what God is offering depth with one spouse for the rest of my life is actually the better, deeper, more wonderful sexual experience. Or as they, you know, have viewed the things they viewed or been exposed to what they've been exposed to, there's a belief that there's an emotional disconnection and detachment from the person that you're in intercourse with. And so the Christian then begins to meditate upon the word. And they come across places like Genesis 2, verse 24, where a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And he discovers that there's an intimacy, a oneness that comes upon a man and a woman, that it's not an emotionally detached act, but a wonderful act that leads to a closeness together. He begins to meditate upon Genesis 1 verse 27, where he discovers that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And rather than looking on a screen and seeing a physical object and objectifying a human body, 
he realizes that that person is made in the very image of God. And his mind begins to be sanctified and renewed. And Jesus prays for that for his disciples. And this, of course, is true across a variety of subjects. Laziness would be an area, you know, to have the mind renewed. Go to the book of Proverbs and read it and discover it and meditate upon it. If it's fear or confidence or love or evangelism, patience, faith, fears of the future that need to be dealt with, the word of God can sanctify the Christian mind. Now, in verse 20, he begins to pray for all who would believe because of the word of the apostles. So that would include us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus here prays for believers who were yet to come, and he prays for a unity, some kind of unity. He says, I pray that they would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, unfortunately, this has often been used by those who are into some kind of apostate, ecumenical kind of work, where different churches with different backgrounds and beliefs, many of which who have just denied the authority of Scripture and denied the supremacy of Christ and have denied the atonement and denied the deity of Christ, denied all of these cardinal doctrines that a believer must receive. I'm not talking about the finer points of doctrine. You know, what do you believe about the gifts of the Spirit for today? I'm talking about the major, significant, you have to believe these things to even be begin to be believing the gospel itself. And many people will say, well, look, Jesus wants all of us to be unified, no matter what our belief system is. And I think in one sense, that's debunked simply by Jesus's prayer. He looks at these apostles who were going to, of course, by the power of the Spirit, write the New Testament, and he prays that we would be unified with them. I think that's really where the prayer is driving, a unity with the apostles. That's where our unity is found. But of course, there is also the need for us to be unified to one another. We are one body in Christ Jesus. And so for those who are truly believers, there ought to be a wonderful unity, a wonderful sharing, a wonderful love and compassion and care. The church, the true church, really does need to stick together and join with one another. We won't do everything all together. There's a need for individual churches with individual leaders and church discipline and instruction and discipleship and all of that. But on the other hand, there's a great need for unity within the church in a community. The glory, verse 22, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Notice that there would be an evangelistic witness based off that unity. And again, when a church is really in love with the apostles doctrine there's a powerful witness and when they're together and loving with other churches and believers there's a wonderful witness father verse 24 i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am this is his final request to be rejoined with his bride 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus' longing to be reunited with his bride. And so now you've heard the heart of Jesus as he's cried out to the Father the night that he was betrayed and the night before the cross. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.